are listening to the 202 Studio, a podcast series exploring the creative sparks emanating from the District of Columbia. Throughout the series, we'll be talking with artists, humanities practitioners, organizational leaders, and many others, individuals working behind the scenes and in the spotlight, in organizations, studios, and workshops in all eight wards, as we explore the heartbeat of DC's arts, humanities, creativity, and culture. To learn more, visit dcarts.dc.gov. Today, we're podcasting from The Lookout in Adams Morgan a creative collective in D.C. for video, audio, and digital creatives. Joining us for this inaugural episode of 202 Creates, the podcast is Mary Hall Surface, a renowned D.C. playwright, producer, director, and teacher. She's written numerous plays, and today we're going to find out about her own creative spark. Welcome, Mary Hall. Thank you, Arthur. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so delighted to be here. You have been quite busy your whole life. And so <laughs> it's, it's astounding when I think about it. And I just want to see if you can take us back and kind of tell us about where this all began. I know you're from Kentucky and I know you got involved in the arts, but I'd like to know what it was and how you got there. Well, I, from a very early age, was attracted to the arts as a way to not merely express myself, but to try to understand other people more deeply, other cultures, other ways of being. Maybe that was because I was from a small town. Um, I looked to the arts to expand my horizons. And in college, I designed my own major where I put all of the arts together, art, music, literature, and theater. And then I had the great opportunity to receive a grant right out of college that took me to Europe for a year to experience theater. And so I was off to the races from there, pretty much. Well, that's great. So, you know, there has to be this moment that one thinks about where they are and why they're there. And so I kind of want to start with asking a little bit about a little bit about that as well. What is it that makes DC the place for you to be and what brought you here? So really, why DC? For me, DC provides an enormous range of potential partners for creating the kind of theater that I like to create or creating the kind of arts opportunities for the citizens that I like to create. And a lot of that is not only is there this immensely rich theater community, but I have done projects throughout the city in relationship to museums and galleries and performing art centers so that there's such a, a deep pool of potential um, that I think is unique to other cities. So yeah, let's talk about that. What, what is it that you look for? You talk about this sort of environment that seems ripe here. What does that mean for you as an artist? What, what does that take? And what does DC have that matches with that? Well, I think a lot of my work is really directed toward engaging audiences or participants, if it's more of an interactive, you know, teaching artist situation, engaging people in a deep questioning process to look through a rich lens at those questions and issues that are most central to us as humans and as communities and as the world. And of course, living where we are uh, in this the capital of the United States, there is a, a lens that the city provides um, based on just the sort of mindset of what so many people are here to do, which is to make the country run um, and to make the world um, a connected, 
interactive, interdependent place. And so there's sort of a gestalt, I guess, of people who are asking big questions, trying to solve big problems. And so given that that is what I embrace most strongly in my work as an artist, it feels just like the right place for me. Let's talk about your work as an artist. You, you, you're prolific, really. I mean, you, you've done a lot of writing. You've you've done some directing. You've put together festivals. So many things that you've been involved in. So I, I, I want to go back to something we talked about a little bit earlier. You were asked to be a playwright, and I, I want to explore that. Where did this bug of writing <laughs> hit you, and and how did you realize that that you had that gift? Well, I think it, the writing really grew out of a desire to. F- create the kind of plays that I wanted to direct Mm -hmm. and that my, um, a good percentage of my professional life has been devoted to uh, multi-generational or intergenerational theater, theater that speaks to people who are six years old as strongly as it speaks to someone who is 60 years old, trying to create plays with multiple entry points that can invite people of all ages and perspectives to uh, experience. And because of uh, the year that I spent in Europe right after uh, college, I was able to experience the depth and range of content and form that theater for young audiences and family audiences could take, which it wasn't really taking in the United States um, in the, the 80s. And so I began to write the kind of plays that I wanted to direct. And so it grew from there. Well, it's just great. So let's talk a little bit about your creative process. I kind of want to get into what it takes for you to be able to write that that work in such a manner that you feel successful with it. And then obviously that audiences can enjoy. So, you know, what's the environment that you have to be in? What's the mindset? Talk to us about your process. Really, what I need to write a play is a fire in my belly. A fire in my belly about something that I believe very strongly in wanting to explore with an audience. Uh, That being said, I've always really tried to have my plays be to communicate through character and not be rooted in a cause if that makes sense. So talk to us about where, where you've seen moments of growth. What would have been the catalyst to that growth in, in your career as a writer, in particular as a playwright? Well, I think when I first started, because I was trying to fill in what I perceived to be a gap in the canon of theater for family audiences in the United States, my plays were very contemporary, uh, very focused on um, issues. I wrote a play inspired by Mozart's childhood that looked at the uh, life of a gifted child. I uh, collaboratively created a play about Jackie Robinson that looked at racial prejudice, a play about hate violence that was Mm -hmm. actually set in Montgomery County. And in the late 90s, after having been the person who was the champion nationally and internationally as as an American Mm -hmm. around plays about very contemporary issues for family audiences, I had sort of a reawakening to the body of classical literature and myth and the stories that have been in our cultures for centuries and embracing, again, the value of 
those heroic journeys and the sort of uh, archetypes. And I got very interested in Jung and it began sort of a whole other chapter of my work uh, in collaboration with the composer David Maddox. And together we created um, a series of plays that took traditional material and re-envisioned it in a particularly American setting. We took the story of Perseus and Medusa and reset it in post-Civil War Louisiana. You know, it's interesting to think about what what you saw missing Mm -hmm. when you were looking at what was available and saying, I can fill a void there. Yes. Right. And And it sounds like there's some themes. What were those themes? Well, I think... There is an anthology of my plays where a colleague wrote the introduction and he said, what Mary Hall is interested in doing is asking questions. She's not focused on delivering the answers. And I think that that is still a guiding light in everything that I do. That's great. As a writer, as a director, as a producer of festivals as a teaching artist, that as humans, we are so needy of having answers and being right that it can close us down to the learning that exists within a deep questioning process. And so... All the work that I try to do through the arts is to encourage people to step out of their perspectives and to ask deeper questions about themselves and about the world around them. This seems to fold into some other work that you've done in that sort of uh, moment when various things collide or come together, or as we might say, they intersect. Uh (laughs) And so we want to talk a little bit about that too. I'd like to have our listeners get to know a little bit about the festival that you started in DC and the program um, that you, the work that you do to put this program together, but also that sort of inspiration behind it, which I think is all rooted in the same, uh, the same thinking. And that's the Intersections Festival. Now in its, uh, how many years has this been going on? This will be its ninth year. Nine years. That's great. And uh, so talk to us about that. What was, what was the start of that? And and, uh, what have you learned over those nine years? Well, the Atlas Intersections Festival was designed to create an opportunity for artists and audiences of every age, race, perspective, culture, community to come together to essentially recognize what we have in common and to celebrate um, our perspectives, our multiple perspectives. And Jane Lang, who was one of the founders of the Atlas Performing Arts Center, and I basically met over coffee and in a time when the economy was uh, in ruins. <laughs> this was 2009. And we thought, let's. what can we do to say to DC, this is who the Atlas is, this is who we want to be. And so we conceived of this festival as a way to say, you know, we want to be a common meeting place for all and have the arts be a catalyst for Imagine, imagine this, art to be a catalyst for questions <laughs> and change and um, good at that, right? and good at that, <laughs> I guess. And so from 2010 until 2015, I served as the artistic director of the festival. And 
it's a process that was open to application for artists from all over DC and the surrounding area and now nationally and internationally as well. And it was, I curated it in such a way that we ensured that there were artists of excellence from student groups, community groups, emerging artists, and then more established artists. And then a big part of my approach was to create innovative arts engagement for the audience so that the audience either before the performance, during the performance, or after the performance could engage more deeply with the artists in the work of art. Well, this sounds like a real uh, a bridge for so many things uh, between the intergenerational aspects of this, but also when we think about sort of our, our artists uh, from, from years ago to artists of today and finding ways for them to kind of cross together, bridge together and build those connections. The arts are really good at this. I, I know you know this. So as a teaching artist, how do you how do you bring that into your own work as a teaching, teaching artist? Well, one of my great joys is my work as a teaching artist at the National Gallery of Art. And there's nothing more exciting to me really than to have a group of young people or a group of adults gathered in a room looking at a work of art that is 100 years old, 200, 300 years old, and finding resonance in that work of art with their own lives and able to, again, to ask deep questions about the work itself, about the artist's life, and about the connections with their own life. So I'm a big believer in the legacy of art history, of theater history, of music history, that it's a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation um, that we as citizens and creators today are privileged to be a part of. And I'm very committed to ensuring that there are as many different voices in that conversation That's as noticeable possible. in the festival as well. Absolutely, so absolutely. The, a chorus, a rich, inclusive, diverse chorus of voices. So Intersections has really been quite substantial for DC to be able to provide this kind of a venue and provide this opportunity for artists to have these these tops, topics of discussion and these and these opportunities. Uh, where do you see that going? I know you're not quite as involved as you said. So yes, yes. Now I, and you birthed this. Now what? <laughs> I birthed it exactly. Now I've been delighted. The uh, executive director of the Atlas, Doug Yule, uh, carried on the curation process um, the first two years after I stepped away, and then now the Atlas has a programming director, Heidi Hawkins, and so it's wonderful to see how they've continued to build on the base uh, that I created and taking it in some new and exciting directions as well. That's great. Well, we look forward to seeing how that's going to continue to develop. But thank you, really. I'd say just thank you for that gift of putting that together for so many audiences to enjoy. I know it goes on a couple of weeks and there's hundreds of people that come in to, to take part in that. And it's thousands, just, not that we're counting, but yeah. Well, great, even better. I, I like when, <laughs> when we get that number a little bit stronger. So you, you seem to permeate a lot of these areas of uh, directing and, and playwriting and teaching how do you do that? What, what's the key to your success? I derive great joy from everything that I do. And I think it's the balance. I mean, it's funny. Um, when I'm writing a play, I think, oh, gosh, get me into the rehearsal room all this time by myself. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And then when I'm in the rehearsal room, I go, oh, get me back to my studio. Let me, you know, let me be alone. Let me write. Um, or sometimes when I'm teaching, I think, oh gosh, all these people are looking at me for answers. I don't have answers. I just have questions. You know, so you, you find yourself, uh, 
questioning your yourself, you know, in, in the process. But I think for me, it just provides such a fantastic balance of task mm. and it draws on the breadth of my skills. I mean, I, I, I work very hard to, um, create as many opportunities for myself as a freelance artist. I draw on a variety of skills, a range of skills that I have, and I try to put them all together to create a professional life that is, uh, fulfilling and enriching for me, but equally, you know, creates opportunities for others. I think that's a real key, particularly the older I get, is how much I am committed to ensuring that I am providing opportunities for artists who are younger than I am, um, or artists who have potentially been marginalized. Um, intersections certainly was all about that. Sure. Um, but even now beyond intersections in the actors I cast, the populations that I work with as a teaching artist, uh, the kinds of plays that I'm writing is really about ensuring that the gates are wide open and that I'm offering whatever I can do to push people up and out and through and in and well, clearly you see the benefits of that and it takes some real intentionality to get there. I mean, I remember when I went to see Cutler's Garden, I felt like there was a full welcoming, that there was a representation. People felt like they, they were connecting Great. with the, with the actors that you chose, mm -hmm. with the, with the sort of vocal range that they even had, you know, it was really easy for me to see how you make your work, uh, inclusive yes. and how you think about that. So I, I just want to comp compliment you on that because I think it's really impressive. Um, Thank but you. I'm also curious, you're welcome. And I'm also curious a little bit about how do you break into the business? Now you've been doing this for a while. Right. You've been you've been writing for years. You've written books beyond just your the plays that you've written. Yeah, and you've you've taught on the subject. Where'd you get that break? You know, what, what what was that and what was your opportunity? And how do you how do you maybe advise someone who's coming into this field uh, how they can move forward now? Well, I think the field is very different uh, than when I started out. I mean. And my entry point was a highly unusual one, I think, in that you know, I received a grant right out of college, which sent me to Europe for a year. I saw over 450 plays. Uh, let's be clear, this wasn't a grant from the Commission on the Arts and Humanities, Oh, I know, it was not. It was <laughs> yes, from the, it was, yes. It's a grant otherwise. It was a grant. N not to say that you haven't been a uh, Yes, indeed, recipient. but no, no, no. We'll yes. get to that in a second. <laughs> yes, no, this is uh, the Thomas Watson Foundation. Thomas Watson founded IBM and mm -hmm. set up this beautiful grant program where it was for people who graduated from college and the only requirements were you could not get a job and you could not go to graduate school. Okay. You pursued a dream. And so I spent 15 months all over Europe uh, pursuing great. my dream of what kind of theater I wanted to make. Wow. And at the end of that time, I met the artistic director of a theater in California and uh, got my first job and had the great gift to work at a collaborative theater company and that everyone did everything. I acted, I directed, I raised money, I wrote press releases, I, you know, built scenery, I managed tours. So I had an incredible on the job training in every aspect of theater. That's great. And that's probably one of the reasons that I have the diversity of skill sets that I have mm -hmm. today. I guess I would say to people starting out in the field that there's value 
in having a diversity of, of skills that you can bring to the table. And there's value in really acknowledging where you want to be and who you want to be. Because I, if you want to be a director, then stage management is a good way to learn about directing, but you can also uh, become known as a stage manager and then not necessarily be thought of as a director. Um, but that's, I think all of these things are very fluid now and artists are not defining themselves so singly. That's one of the things I love about reading the bios of young actors. They say, sure. you know, I'm an, a maker, entrepreneur, videographer, actor, singer person. And, and I think that's fantastic. I love that. I think that's great. And I also think about the tools that are available now and hopefully the, the increased opportunity for people from all backgrounds to be able to participate in that. But, but especially the tool, the tools is what I think about. And when I think about technology, so, um, with, at the risk of sounding a little bit, uh, uh, offensive here. I just want to say tools have changed in your time since totally. you were, you were, you were beginning to write and you were beginning to even direct. How, how has technology influenced what you're doing now? I would say embracing the potential for projections, the whole explosion in audiovisual design in relationship to theater has probably had the biggest impact on me and my work. I don't use it all the time. I think at the moment there's sort of a trap in theater to think, oh gosh, we need to sure. use projections because we've become such a visual culture and without it, you know, particularly young audiences aren't going to be engaged. But I would say that that's probably the biggest uh, influence for me. And, and how do you involve yourself in that process with, with a projection designer? Well, for um, Colors Garden, I mean, it was a very extensive uh, collaboration in that as I was writing the play, I was imagining the projections and I described mm. them because as you, when you saw the play, there was not, we didn't talk a lot. There was a lot of movement, a lot of music and interaction with the projections. And so I had very clear idea about what they needed to do in terms of the story that they would tell. But I didn't have a storyboard visual moment for moment of what they were actually going to look like. That's was the beautiful part of the collaboration with the scene designer and the, and the projection designer. Um, so the only way I know how to work with projections is to understand them as a character in the play. Mm, okay, great. And really think about what the job of that character is. And it's my job as director or playwright or both to imagine the the dramatic role of that character. And then in terms of how it's physically, visually rendered, that's the collaborative part of it. Oh, that's interesting because I would think it, it's probably a bit of a challenge as you approach your work now and you begin to uh, start to draft a new, a new play or draft a new work that you think of it as a character, but is there some sense of you have to use that character projection now, or do you feel like it's just in, uh, interchangeable? I don't feel that I need to use it. Um, I think a lot of contemporary writers, particularly writers for young audiences, feel like they do because and they they feel like the audience is going to want it. That the audience somehow won't stick with a play if there's not something that reminds them of a video game. 
That's interesting I, it, because I would not that you can get into the minds of everyone, but I'm always kind of curious. What's that motivation for using any amount of, of video today? I mean, I happen to see in, in the opportunities that I have to go out in the public. I see a lot more of these performances that are being presented with heavier and heavier, heavier and heavier use on technology. <clears throat> I think it's part of the vocabulary of where we are as a culture and we have the tools and for many artists, they're just very attracted to that additional layer of meaning and form that they can offer. And I get very excited by it and I see them in my mind overused all the time. There's the use of technology in the play, but I'm just curious, what's your response to the fact that there is a growing access to technology. You know, we're walking around with cell phones in our pocket. We're, you know, constantly available. Uh, we have constantly available to us all this media. And almost to the point that you kind of wonder, when are we going to get them in the theater? Do you find that that's a challenge in terms of getting people into the show? And is technology sort of used as a, a bit of a lure or a technique to, to bridge that? Well, I think a lot of companies, uh, theater companies, certainly are using social media and live streaming and um, those kind of tools that are available to them to encourage people to come through the door. I mean, the play that I'm uh, just recently directed at Constellation Theater here in D.C., The Skin of Our Teeth, Thornton Wilders. I mean, we had a whole wonderful conversation on social media about our woolly mammoth puppet mm. and uh, <laughs> lots of cute little videos of it dancing back and forth. And, and I'm sure that creates interest, certainly. And you know, there are a lot of theater companies that are experimenting with people, you know, actually using their cell phones, you know, during a performance to, you know, follow a trail of text in order to move through a space, you know, those kind of immersive things. And I think that's all fantastic. Um, and I also think that the theater can be a place where you can come and settle into a good story being told by humans, that it actually creates a space that is in contrast to our constant engagement with technology. Um, I'm Maybe I'm old, but I think there is something truly to be said for a group of people coming into a space and imagining together in a way that only theater can provide. What do you say to those out there that are not coming to the theater right now. They maybe don't have a, a history of doing so, either from their own family or uh, through any experience that they've been able to become more acquainted with it. And they might just as soon say, you know, I'll, I'll sit at home and I'll watch some streaming video uh, yeah, that I can just bring in. I don't need to go to the theater. What do you say to those people? Well, I guess I'd first like to say to them, I hope that all of our theaters are making you feel welcome, <laughs> that we are connecting with you in a way that's authentic and the work that's being presented um, has something to say to you. Um, that's first. And then secondly, I guess I would say, have you been in a room with a bunch of other people recently for a reason besides work? Our culture doesn't invite you into that space that much anymore. And there's new research out there that if we all are sitting and experiencing the same story, that our hearts 
actually begin to beat in the same rhythm, in the same rhythm. And I find that extraordinary and powerful in terms of thinking about what happens when people connect on such a deep level. It is incredible what the arts can do. And they've done a lot for you. You've obviously done a lot with them as well. So I, I'm just going to have a couple more questions for you, and then we'll, we'll have to wrap up today. But I wanted to find out what is the most satisfying part for you in your work? A child standing on the chair and <laughs> <laughs> saying, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I think it's when people share what I call aha moments. Sure. When they say, I never thought of that, or I didn't know that, or I've never felt this way, or who knew that blah, blah, blah. I just love that. It's an, it's an incredible moment, isn't it? It is. It is. Mary Hall, I know that you have been a past grant recipient from the, from the agency, and uh, by no means can I predict the future, <laughs> but can you tell us about how that grant has played out with you as a, as a professional? Well, twice I received the individual fellowship once uh, very early in my time in Washington, and then I guess the last time was about 10 years ago. And in both circumstances, it gave me the opportunity to spend time in R&D, research and development, sure. really thinking about the kind of projects that I want to develop. And so it gave me a real opportunity to uh, take a little bit of the pressure off as a freelancer and have the luxury of going deep and figuring out what kind of projects that I wanted to do that I could then bring back uh, to the D.C. community. Well, thank you for all that you're doing for the DC community and really the world. Your work is, is uh, available everywhere. And we want to thank you for the time, for talking to our audiences today, for being here and for just being you. So thanks so much. Well, thank you, Arthur. You've been listening to The 202 Studio, a podcast series of the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to the commissioners and staff of the Commission on the Arts and Humanities, the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music and Entertainment, and special thanks to our mayor, Muriel Bowser, for her support of the Arts and Humanities in the District of Columbia. And thanks to you for listening today.